Hello and welcome. This is the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracey and in this series we chat with doctors and health professionals who forge all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. This episode of the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast is brought to you by Blue Gibbon. Blue Gibbon provide doctors with world-class career opportunities described as the weird and the wonderful, including large events, high-profile government departments on remote offshore islands, uh, in technology and corporate organizations, and more. Relentless five-star service is guaranteed. So head over to bluegibbon.com to get in touch. Our guest for this episode is a Sydney GP who hails originally from Canada. And like many of our guests um, on this podcast over the last 18 months or so, she came to medicine slightly later in life, not straight out of high school into uni. Um, She had an unusual journey um, along the way. So Dr. Jill Gamberg is now one of Australia's first certified lifestyle medicine physicians and is well as talking about how she gravitated towards this relatively new field, we discussed the role and future of lifestyle medicine in primary care. She talks about her forays into the media, um, her commitment to public health education, and importantly, why she's a big believer in saying yes and uh, making the most of the opportunities that life presents you, even if they're not necessarily the ones that you might have hoped for or been working toward. Um, before we get to that one, just a quick reminder that the CCIM conference, which was scheduled to be happening in June, has of course been postponed to the 12th and 13th of December. Uh, it'll be taking place at the Novotel Sydney at Brighton Beach. If you've not already registered for that one, you can do so by heading over to creativecareersinmedicine.com and follow the links to the event page. While you're there, if you're not already, you can register to become a member of CCIM. Follow the links from the homepage to that one. You can read about all the member benefits that you can get, including a discounted member fees um, if you bundle your membership with your CCIM 2020 conference ticket. Again, that's creativecareersinmedicine.com and follow the links. So with all of that um, now out of the way, here it is, my conversation with Dr. Jill Gamberg. Dr. Jill Gamberg, thank you so much for joining the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. No worries. Look, I've been looking forward to this chat because uh, like so many of the people that we talk to on this podcast, essentially, I guess all of the people we talk to on this podcast have interesting sort of journeys, but yours is, again, a slightly less conventional path into medicine because you, in that you didn't jump straight into studying straight out of high school. You explored some really other, other really interesting opportunities um, prior to, to getting to that point. I'd love to talk about how they ultimately led you to where you are now first, though. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners a little bit about your current work, um, your roles, the various hats that you play at the moment? Sure thing. Uh, Absolutely. I've always sort of had lots of broad interests. At the moment, um, working full-time as a general practitioner in Sydney, Australia. Uh Uh, And, um, you know, that work is very varied. We we do have a kind of my, my specialty, my special interests, I guess, would be in women's health children's health, um, lifestyle medicine, and I guess sport medicine, mental health, that kind of thing. But general practice is very broad. The other thing that I like to do is um, I have a hat on in terms of writing some blogs, uh, doing a bit of media, uh, you know, just uh, sort of talking about in educating and um, discussing, sort of trying to improve health literacy in general. Uh, doing a bit of social, dipping my toes into social media, mm-hmm. which I am um, just learning. And, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's important to keep your eyes open and uh, learn new things every day. And 
Uh, otherwise, you know, if we just put our nose down and, and stick to the same thing, sometimes it can be a little bit dull or boring. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, your 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 backstory, which um, I know a little bit about, but I'm interested to talk about it. It's very much about learning new things and taking on different challenges and, and very much keeping it from getting too boring. So your journey to medicine and I guess lifestyle medicine, which is, as you said, is one of the, the main specialty or interest, interest areas that you have. Um, you mentioned, I think, a little bit the, the background that you had in sports and, and that your background in sports therapy prior to, to medicine. Of course, you were an athlete yourself prior to that in, in the sport of rhythmic gymnastics. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, so um, <laughs> I was just, I was sure because like a lot of people were seeing it on TV. I, I don't know all that much about it other than what I see at the Olympics, I guess. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that sport, how you got into it, what what sort of a role in your life it, it, it played? It played a huge role. Uh, you know, just like other young children, my parents put me in gymnastics, regular gymnastics, artistic, with the uh, beams and all the exciting floor routines and everything. Sure. And so I started in that type of gymnastics. And when I got to about eight or nine years old, uh, I think one of my friends told me about this other type of gymnastics. So that's rhythmic gymnastics. And I tried that and I just fell in love with it. When I was about nine, I started. And by the time I was 11, I was already training every day. So, so I became an elite gymnast and pretty much spent all my waking hours that I wasn't at school mm. training. And that certainly shaped uh, what I did for most of my teenage life. And then my thought was that, you know, that was going to lead to the Olympics and lead to um, ultimately probably a coach and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, life has a funny way of turning out sometimes. I fractured my hand or broke my hand when I was about, Gosh, about 15 or 16, maybe 16 yeah. I was. Yeah. And that sort of ended my career, which oh, really? at the time was, of course, the worst thing ever. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at how your life shapes you, I, I think that was a terrific thing that happened looking back because it enabled me to take a different path, which, of course, ultimately led to medicine. But that, as you quite rightly said, was a 20-year path mm. uh, or, you know, 15 to 20-year path to actually get to medicine. So I definitely have had a very interesting uh, journey compared to some did the, the the risk injury that that you said, as you said um, prematurely ended your your careers and aspirations in, in as an athlete? Is that what sort of um, made you think about sports therapy as a career? Like, is, you know, looking at it from the other side, well, I can't I can't compete myself, but perhaps I can help those that that, that are in that capacity. I, I think a lot of doctors, if I can generalize, have this sort of innate desire to help. Mm. Um, and help others, and I always had that, and certainly when the other gymnasts got injured because let's face it that happened almost every day um i just was always the one to go and help and i didn't have any experience at the time but i just found it really interesting and i found also training very interesting and and at the time you know i we were in the no pain no gain era so we literally just worked ourselves to the bone and we Mm. thought that was normal now of course many years later there's probably better ways to train athletes but that's probably a whole other conversation but certainly that sort of sparked an interest in wanting to care for people. So I wanted to be a doctor since I was 10 or maybe even earlier. Uh, And then with the interest being an athlete, uh, an elite level athlete, that certainly was a sports medicine type interest Mm. in the beginning days. I gave you that opportunity to to stay a little bit close to to what had been, I guess, your passion for for, for most most of your life at that point. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately... Um, the journey began 
when, so in Canada where I grew up, mm. um, you have to do, the medicine is postgraduate. There's no other uh, option to do. So, of course, I had to go and do a science, a bachelor's of science. At the time, that was, I mean, there was a couple of alternative universities, but essentially you had to go and do a bachelor of science of some sort and do really well and get in. And um, so I went and did a bachelor of biology and, and I did really well. But, mm. you know, medicine's hard to get into. So I didn't manage to get in that year. And then I thought, I almost got in, but, you know, again, looking back at the journey, I thought it was the worst thing ever. But yeah. yet again, it formed my journey into this circuitous path, which ended up, you know, teaching me lots of other amazing things. So, in fact, then after my biology degree finished, uh, I decided to do sort of my second passion or something that seemed to me that I would be interested in was a degree called exercise science and mm. athletic therapy. And uh, we don't have athletic therapy in Australia, but it's very, very similar to sports physiotherapy. Right. So it's quite specific musculoskeletal therapy slash medicine slash rehabilitation. But what's neat, what's really, really interesting about that job is that uh, athletic therapist I'm talking about mm. is that you sort of have the whole, the whole, um, you're in charge of the whole thing. So you, you're on the field or, or, you know, I guess if it's gymnastics on the mat yep. with the athletes, if they get injured, you do the emergency medicine. So you do the first aid, which is kind of fun. And then when they get injured, you rehabilitate them. And then you also do the training and the rehabilitation in terms of returning to sport. Right. So it's, it's, it's really, really amazing yeah. in terms of doing every side of uh, rehabilitating an athlete from immediate care of the injury to getting them back to sport. So I was really inspired by that. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a terrific degree. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. And while I was working in university, sorry, while I was studying in university, I was also doing jobs on the side as you do to get yourself yep, through uni. Yep. And so I worked as a Pilates, Matt Pilates instructor. I did a lot of personal training. I taught personal training. I taught some aerobics classes. Um, I also did, you know, typical uni stuff like waitressing and barista and working in bars. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've done all that as yeah, well. Sure. But um, what, what that enabled me to do, I actually loved it so much that I ended up coming second in my university for the um, degree, which kind of Wow. helped me in the long run get into medicine. But at the time, I was sort of not thinking about it and, um, because I was going in this new path. Yeah. And um, once I finished that, in Canada, you had to do a certification exam. It was sort of like a board, a national board certification. And that took me about a year, year and a half. And so I did that. And then after that, I got this terrific opportunity to be uh, one of the athletic therapists or sport therapists for the Canadian Olympic judo team. Yeah, I was really interested. I saw this um, when I was reading up about you, pre, pre, you know, in the lead up to this conversation. I wanted really keen to. So, what was that experience like? Did you did you get to go travel to the games yourself in that capacity, or, or were you more sort of involved in, in the prep and training stages? What was your what was your place? Well, let's first start by saying that I can't do judo, never have done judo, and it's very strange that I got into judo because, you know, you'd think that I would have done gymnastics or something, but, you know, your path leads you where it leads you. Yeah, yeah. And I met some really amazing people who were working in athletic therapy. Anyway, I ended up in this job. So what's cool about it is that I got to meet lots of judokas. I got to meet, um, you know, just uh, sports medicine doctors, people in that space. 
Uh, and I did. I got I got to travel all over the world with him. We went to Europe for competitions. We went to so at the time, of course, it was out of Canada. We did a lot of uh, America, South America, yeah. all over North America, Europe. Um, it was it was terrific, and I did that for probably two or three years, I think. Wow. Um, just you know, taking care of the athletes, whether it be in practice and then going to these really insane competitions. I think the biggest competition we went to was in France one time, where there was literally ten or fifteen thousand people watching the match. Wow. So what, what year is this? How, 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 how long ago is this? Ooh, now you're testing my memory. Maybe <laughs> nineteen, maybe 1999. Right, okay. So this is the lead up for these guys, for, the, for that particular team. That would be the lead up to, to Sydney, I guess. Correct. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, I didn't get to go to. Um, so the, you know, when you go for the Olympics, as you know, I guess most countries are similar. Um, you don't get to go, which is a bit funny, I find, but I guess they have their rules. Mm. And you can't actually go with your team that you work with. There's a medical team that's chosen for the entire uh, country team. And so, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go to the Sydney Olympics with the team. Uh, but luckily, one of my colleagues got to go. So that was really, really amazing cool. for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, but I hadn't yet been to Australia at that yeah, point in my life. I was, I was very say. disappointed. I mean, you gig, you gig here eventually, which is nice. But on the way, you took in something like, I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but like something like 50 different countries on the way. What was, <laughs> you, you did some, when, when, I'm a bit hazy on the timeline here. So when was the, the you did, I think it was about two years traveling, backpacking the world. Where did that yeah, come in? Yeah. Was it, this, this was prior to landing in Australia to, to settle, I guess? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, um, uh, around that time, just around the Olympics, I had a friend that sort of, talked to me about traveling and she was doing this great journey and sort of inspired me and I've always loved traveling I've done, dabbled a little bit especially doing the judo competitions we traveled a bit and I started to get a little bit of a travel bug um, and just so I ended up working three jobs and saving all my money and I bought a one-way ticket to Thailand Wow! and I didn't know how long I was going to be gone and I didn't really have a plan and I literally ended up traveling around the world for two years. So were you by yourself for most of this time? Yeah. I mean, you pick up people along the way, I'm sure, like, you know, having backpacked a little bit myself, you, you know, you find travel companions along the way and people, you know, you stick together. for How, how long were you sort of traveling by yourself? And did you, you, you I, I imagine you must have met some fascinating people along the road. I'll be honest, you're, uh, you're quite right. I mean, I, I did travel alone. I set off by myself. But I was never alone. Mm. You meet new people. That's one of the best things about it. You know, back in those days, luckily or unluckily, I think quite luckily, we didn't have, we barely had internet, let alone mm. devices. So people actually talked to each other, yeah. which was really nice. <laughs> if you sat next to someone on a bus, you talked to them for 11 hours or a train. Yeah. Um, now, I'm saying it in jest, of course, but, but it was... Um, it was really great. I was never alone. I met someone and they're like, well, I'm going to this really great place. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go there too. And over those two years, uh, I didn't quite do all the 50 countries in those two years, mm. but I did a, a heck of a lot. <laughs> uh, and it was probably the best experience of my life. Honestly, if I can look back on anything I've done, it was probably those two years of traveling. But it is what led me to Australia. So how did that come about? I mean, did you had you just run out of like were you, were you exhausted? Did the money run out? What what was the were you, how did you land in Australia? What was the decision there? Yep, you're quite right. My money was running out, <laughs> uh, and I had 
in that travel, I decided to apply for a working holiday visa in Australia. Right. As a Canadian, in those years, you could get one year. And so what I did was sort of thought, okay, I'm running out of money. I better go to Australia now. And then I did end up staying here for a year. I've traveled all around the country, so I've seen a lot of Australia. Mm -hmm. What a fabulous country. And I worked and traveled pretty much for a year here. And so, I mean, did you, I mean, you must, if you're backpacking, you're going to meet Australians along the way. You must have known some people. Did that, did that ever sort of help you when you got here? No, I didn't know anybody at all. Really? So I actually was just a backpacker here. I met plenty. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't know anybody when I came here. So again, I came by myself. Uh, but I did meet a lot of people. I saw some incredible things. I did some uh, things like, you know, work out on the Great Barrier Reef on a dive boat for a month wow. and live out on the water. I mean, I've just, you know, it was, an, it was an insane year. It was so spectacular. I learned so much about people and about myself and about what I wanted out of my life. Um, you know, it was an incredible experience. I would recommend it to anyone. I mean, I was going to ask, I mean, you, you've sort of answered my next question, which is, I guess, how... That, that travel really must have prepared you for, I mean, I guess that somewhere along the line, you've made the decision to finally go with, you know, as you were saying before, you wanted to be a doctor since you were 10 years old. You've at some point along the way here, you've made that decision. Okay. Yep. It's time to, 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 to kick this in your gear. Maybe was the, was that, was it sort of very soon after you sort of, you know, decided you were going to stay in Australia that that was the, how did that come about? So, so it was not the plan. It was definitely always in the back of my mind that I would like to do that. But um, what I did was I finished my year and I had to leave Australia. Right. I went back to Canada for a year. I got a job at a pharmaceutical company researching um, pain management. I was doing a, a, I was developing a course for a pharmacist about pain management. Mm -hmm. um, another one of my hats, I guess. Yeah. And uh, during that year, I really started to think, this is not what I want to do. Uh, I learned a lot from that job, but I just decided, no, that's not what I want to yeah. do. I really, really want to do medicine. And so I started to think, well, okay, how can I do this? I can apply to universities in Canada. Gosh, I really loved Australia. What about if I apply there? And so literally, there was not much planning in it. I tend to be a little bit like that when I get a little idea in my head. I literally went online. I typed in Sydney. I typed in medicine. Uh, UNSW popped up. I read the requirements. I thought, I have those. I literally send in my application and the rest is history. I got in. <laughs> so it was quite funny because I got in about three, if I remember something like three or four weeks before. Uh, so I went to UNSW, yep. uh, University of New South Wales. I literally about four weeks Prior to starting uni, they called me and they said, we'd like to offer you a spot. So wow. I had to, I That's had to great. find a loan. <laughs> yeah, really. So I had to sublet my apartment, quit my job with notice, you know, sell my car, tell my parents, Hey, guess what? Mom and dad, I'm, I'm moving. moving to Australia. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that that's what happened. So it was, it was a little bit crazy, but I just thought, you know what? When am I ever going to get the opportunity to do medicine? I've always wanted to do it. And so that's how I ended up in Australia. I mean, I guess it was just the next bit. I mean, you, having spent all that time traveling, this was the next sort of great adventure. I'm like, was was general practice always the um, the the goal? I mean, you talked about how much you enjoyed that the, the sports therapy role that you had played and the, the broad 
range of stuff that you were able to do in that whole patient, well, I guess patient athlete patient journey. Was was that what attracted you to general practice over specialties, or what was the what was the attraction there? So no, I didn't choose general practice first. Um, I sort of fell into it, but it's again the way my journey took me. I definitely wanted to be a sports medicine physician when I was in medical school right. or a surgeon. Right. Uh, I did a lot of uh, volunteering and um, in, in surgical specialties when I was a student. I was really keen in that respect. I was a lot older. I was 10 years older than everybody in my university. <laughs> sure. So that made me quite different than everyone else. A bit of life experience, a bit of sort of, you know, just a different journey, I guess, yeah. than some others. Made some great friends, however. Yep. Um, and I, I just um, was really keen. So I ended up doing my elective uh, in year, what was it, year five, I think, uh, of medicine out of six. And I ended up spending six months in Africa. So I got to uh, take the opportunity to do a bit more traveling. So I spent a month in Ghana. Wow. Uh, working in, in obstetrics, or I shouldn't say working, um, doing my elective, so right. as a student. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, so I got into theater a bit there and did some uh, cesarean sections and things, which were a bit, a bit of surgery. And then I traveled across Africa for four months. And then I did another six weeks or eight weeks in South Africa in neurosurgery. Wow. And, you know, that was an incredible yeah. experience. And again, I was, they just, they embraced me and taught me and treated me like one of the doctors. And I just got to do everything. There was a wonderful experience. So after all that, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. And, um, you know, again, life has a funny way of taking you down a path. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I became an intern and, uh, internship is pretty full on, you know, it's a hundred hours a week or whatever you do, just getting your teeth wet, learning everything. Yep. And, um, you know, I guess in those junior years, I ended up meeting my husband. And uh, then you start to think about, well, do I want to have a family? And at that stage, I was not that I was old, but I was, you know, already getting to the point where I had to make a decision about long paths of training versus shorter paths of training mixed in with children. Yeah. And so that in itself is probably the reason I chose general practice. Not because it was easy, not because it was a cop out, not because of anything, but because it enabled me to have a bit more of a family friendly um, type of work life balance. And um, certainly at the time, things are still difficult for uh, parents in medicine, but certainly at the time, uh, trying to have kids during training, which is what I sort of figured would happen, which which is what happened. Um, You know, that's the path. That's the path I went down. So how long had you been doing general practice before you started to, to, to look at um, other areas like lifestyle medicine, which is something that you've, um, you obviously you were one of Australia's first um, uh, certified lifestyle physicians. What, what was yeah. the, how, how was the journey to, towards lifestyle medicine? Um, and what was the sort of attraction in terms of broadening the focus perhaps, or focusing on, um, prevention and, and, and that kind of angle. What, 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 how long have you been in general practice and how did you end up, um, what was the attraction to lifestyle? Uh, that, and of course, my answer is going to be long-winded and roundabout <laughs> again because I never take the quick route. Um, <laughs> so, again, because I was, uh, without getting too much into politics, let's just say because I was 
born Canadian and I started as an international student, I had to do this tenure moratorium thing, right. which uh, required me, uh, no matter what training oh, program I was right. in. Yeah, but you need to get regional. Yeah, that's correct. So I had to do, once I decided to do general practice, I had to do all of my training in the country. Yep. And so that was difficult with a young family, but I worked in some fabulous practices. So I saw some, some of rural Australia, which was quite fabulous, but it also meant that I dragged out my training a fair bit because I was trying to sort of not waste, that's an unfair word, use up those 10 years in an interesting fashion. Yep. So in, in that those 10 years, I did a lot of part-time training. I had two children. I also did a lot of locuming. I also did a lot of surgical assisting, which I loved in general surgery and neurosurgery and obstetrics. Um, and as well, I spent a year working at, at, at a company doing um, retrieval medicine, oh. which uh, yeah, which was really cool. Yeah. It was like um, I didn't do a lot of retrievals. I would have liked to have done more. But uh, we sort of sat at a, it, it, basically it was for people that get sick and injured overseas, and uh, we were coordinating the retrieval. Right, right, right. Um, and I did get a couple of those in where you actually go and medically support someone to come home wow. uh, back to Australia. So I did lots of cool things, did my exams as well in dental practice. Yeah. And then that's sort of how I filled out my 10 years. Uh, that's how I ultimately ended up back in Sydney which is where I live. Yep. And, you know, then I thought, okay, well, what have I always been interested in? So, so I finished general practice, finished my 10 years. And then I thought, I really want, I believe in prevention a lot. Uh -huh. And in medicine, I think anywhere around the world, without putting down medicine, is very much people get sick and we, and we try and help them. Okay. We try and yeah. fix them. Yep. We try and make them better. Yep. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that because, of course, well, those we jobs need are very to help people. people. Yeah, exactly. 100%. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if we could try and help prevent some of these diseases in the first place? Yep. And I'm talking about things like diabetes or um, obesity or some cancers. So there's ways that we can alter our lifestyle or try to be more healthy in general physically and mentally, to try and prevent. And so that's really where my passion lies. And, you know, again, it sort of brings you back to, to where you come from. And where I come from is eating healthy, regular physical activity, you know, all the stuff that, that is lifestyle medicine. And that's where I started as an athlete. And, and I always grew up in a family that was very interested in health and well-being. Um, I was very lucky. My parents were very, very in, in, in tune with, trying to be healthy. And so they instilled that in, in me. Mm. And, you know, I, I, lifestyle medicine is a very new field. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's basically looking, so it's evidence-based, which is very important to yep, me. Sure. Evidence-based well-being. And based on a few different sort of pillars, uh, regular physical activity, uh, good quality nutrition, sound sleep, embracing healthy relationships, decreasing your stress, and, and, of course, decreasing harmful substances. Yeah. And while that all sounds very simple, and it's essentially something we all know, I think you'd be surprised how many of us don't actually do it, <laughs> including myself. Yeah. You know, I've been guilty of it. Oh, and sure. so what I think what we need to kind of go back to is, is, is just the simple things. How do we try and make ourselves happy and healthy to try and prevent disease? 
and ultimately how can I support people in doing that? In in taking on that challenge, though, I guess in you know there's a new um, new process from a lot of um, a lot for you to learn, some training involved in this. Where where you as I said before, you're one of the first certified lifestyle metaphysicians in Australia. Did you have, were there role models in that space that you were looking to or what, you know, you look at people like pioneers in that space, people like Gary Egger perhaps, were there individuals who inspired you or is it more sort of the philosophy as you, you that you were just talking about that was, the, that was the, the key driving factor? Well, what's interesting is I think, I think as you said, the philosophy was there first, mm. but I didn't know that that belonged to anything. Mm. And then when I started looking into it and found pioneers like um, Gary Eager or David Katz, uh, who's a U.S. physician, or um, Rangan Chatterjee, or you know, some of the, there's a, quite a big movement in in the U.K. as well as the U.S. at the moment, and starting in Australia, really looking at the pioneers of lifestyle medicine. Mm. And then I found out that we had a lifestyle medicine um, society in Australia, yeah, and yeah. I thought, ooh, I got to go find out about them. And then I got involved with that society with Aslam. Uh, a few years ago and found out that there was an international board certification in lifestyle medicine and in fact a fellowship and I've completed both of those um, and what what I like about it is that it's multidisciplinary yeah. so in fact you don't just have to be a doctor you can be a nurse or a physio or uh, a, new, a dietitian or etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can do this international board certification and what's nice about an international certification is it's across the board the same. Yeah. So whether you live in Poland or the US or the UK or Australia, you do the same exam. And so that sort of brings to a standard of acceptability. And then a newish thing is the fellowship. And there's not too many of us that are fellowed yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know the society is working very hard to try and make this more public and make it more popular. And I think that the way of the future to be honest but yeah. you know ultimately it needs to be tried and true before other doctors or other uh, health professionals will be interested in uh, embarking on a process of yeah. certification or fellowship i was going to say because as, as you say it's, it's a you know while the philosophy behind us be around forever the um well for, for a very long time at least if not forever um the um <laughs> the, the field itself is, is still relatively new as a, as a sort of a form of specialty or um special interest area. Um, do you feel it's well understood or, you know, by, by patients and doctors alike? No, sadly, I don't. I don't. Um, again, without putting down medicine or, or medical university, sorry, medical school or university in general, I think that lifestyle medicine or preventative medicine or the parts of it are very poorly taught at university. Mm. And um, I, I don't think that's, through any fault. I mean, I think that at medical school, you have so much to learn, but I think they're so busy teaching about disease and how to fix disease Mm. that we don't talk about how to prevent disease. And so ultimately, one of my goals in the future is to try and bring a bit of lifestyle medicine to medical students, uh, because I think that's really where it needs to be taught. I certainly didn't learn a lot about nutrition or exercise at medical school. So I think that's something we can uh, improve. The other part of the coin is the way that general practice is, um, or medicine is, uh, in most countries, especially in Australia, we're very time poor. So you have 15 minutes to examine, to take a history, do an examination, figure out a solution, and give someone some practical tips or treatments for their ailment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, when you say, let's say someone comes in with a, a disease such as diabetes, and we're trying to tell them, okay, you need to lose some weight, you need to do some exercise, you need to change your diet, you need to sleep better, and you go, okay, come, do that and come back and see me in three months. And you, you may be well-intentioned, but that poor person may have no idea how to sleep well, stress less, lose a bit of weight, eat better, even though everyone thinks they do, mm. or they might need some guidance. So I think that's where the system isn't geared towards preventative medicine. And so I think we had some steps to take to try and help that. I think the government should help us with whether it's changing an MBS item numbers or whether it's just changing the model of care. We need to look a bit more at prevention. And by all means, I'm not talking about people stopping their medications or not doing the surgeries that they need. I'm not talking about that. No. We just need to work. We need, we need to work hand in hand. Yeah. We need to do the prevention. We need to try to prevent people from getting sick by looking at those lifestyle factors. And then if, in fact, people get sick, of course we need to help them and help them get better or help them through their journey or whatever that might be. That, that to me, is the role of a doctor. I'm talking about the roles of do- and obviously the roles of, of lifestyle um, physicians. When when we think about some of that, and we talked about some of the cause, you know, the cause, the underlying causes behind a lot of the, the, the issues is, is, is the main things that you're trying to, 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 to identify and, and, and improve, um, limit those risk factors, I guess. Um, and if you look sort of more broadly, um, I'm, one, I'm wondering if I can get your thoughts on the role of lifestyle medicine, whether there's a limit to how far beyond that individual patient circumstance. I mean, you talked already about the need to perhaps look at the way we educate doctors, but also there's things like, um, I mean, I look at an example in, within, we talked a little bit about your media work that you've done before, but you, um, earlier this year at the height of the, the devastating summer bushfires over the summer, you wrote a piece that was published uh, by Fox Online about the, the, the impact of the fires with physical and mental health, the short and long-term impact on, on population health. Do, do lifestyle physicians have a, a greater responsibility to speak out about these kinds of issues, like where you might have, whether it's smoke or the, the mental health cause, issues caused by you know, the loss and devastation, um, and the physical injury, all those kinds of things. Do, do you have more of a, a responsibility to take, talk out, uh, speak out about those issues? Or, or is it something that you just in, in your own sort of situation felt particularly um, strong about and you wanted to speak out for that reason you, 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 you were able to, to you know, have those articles published? Yeah, I, I guess I'm grateful for the opportunity to have a voice. And, and of course, not all doctors, not all health professionals want to speak out yeah. uh, in the media. So I guess that's a personal choice. And that's something that uh, I'm very passionate about, improving health literacy, trying to help people be empowered to make their own healthy decisions mm. um, about life. I, I appreciate all the opportunities that I've had in the media um, whether it's writing pieces or being interviewed on TV. Um, but I think we all have a responsibility to empower people to make the right decisions about their health by putting out information that is evidence-based um, and is not causing uh, confusion or, or, you know, not putting out misinformation. Mm. And sadly, I mean, I guess if we look at social media and media in general, uh, having freedom of speech and expression is a wonderful thing, but it also enables a lot of people to put out a lot of rubbish out there, yeah. which is confusing. And I think the consumer, the average consumer of information, of health information at the moment is really confused 
And well, I don't blame them. Well, no, I mean, you especially, especially if you look at the moment, what's going on with, with now, there could not be a more important time for us to be getting out, you know, uh, reliable, accurate um, information about health and prevention and how to, how to, to manage things with coronavirus um, now impacting us yeah. all. And yet well, we prevention have... prevention again. Yeah. Sorry. Well, no, well, you're right. And then, but then, you know, the amount of misinformation and disinformation out there and conspiracy theories and all of these things that, that get legs because of the, the way how quickly that they, they, they can be shared and the polarization, the way people want to, you know, align, align themselves with whatever it might be for whatever reason. It, it does it get, is it it must be frustrating for you from your perspective yeah look i i um i think it's great that everybody can have a voice but i think there's also that's one of the big negatives that's going on at the moment things like um anti-vaccination theories and yeah. all these conspiracy theories and i mean i think ultimately we People like me, people in the health professional role, need to have a responsibility to help guide people through ways of trying to keep well mentally and physically. Mm. And again, we're looking at prevention. How are we going to get through this coronavirus epidemic or pandemic? Uh, we're going to prevent uh, in the best of our ability, working together by not touching our face, by washing our hands, by wearing masks, by socially distancing, by listening to recommendations from the government. You know, and I think this doesn't matter where you live. Uh, this is all over the world. And I think there's so many people talking about conspiracy things, talking about, you know, that it's all made up or that it's, yeah, you know, it's, I find it frustrating. And I, I really understand why some people take some of this stuff and go running with it. Mm. Um, but I think that's where we have a responsibility to get the right information out there. Um, that's going to help save lives. That's going to help um, support people through difficult times. And I think, you know, I think it's also important not just to think about physical health. I think we have to think about mental health. Mm. Mental health is really severely affected at the moment. Um and, and there's a big stigma still in, in this year, uh, even though we're in, you know, 2020 about um, not, not, being, not speaking up about being mentally ill or being depressed or being anxious. In my general practice at the moment, I would say that probably half of my consults every day with patients are mental health. Everybody's wow. really struggling yeah. at yeah. the moment. And we need to be able to speak about that. Um, in fact, I was very, very blessed to be able to organize a mental health international virtual summit uh, a few weeks back where we, there were doctors and um, psychologists and exercise specialists and all kinds of health professionals from all over the world, literally, in the UK, the US, from Australia, yep. all coming together. And I guess this is one of the positives of being stuck at home is that we did it virtually um, despite all the time changes and we were able to sort of bring some light to how we can all work together to get through this. Um, and so I, I felt very grateful to be able to organize or be, be one of uh, a couple of people who organized mm. this event. And, and so I think that we just need to keep speaking up about prevention, about physical and mental health, about well-being and, and evidence-based 
you know, not run with the conspiracy theories, but really help people, the general public to weed through what is good information about health and what is probably misinformation or misleading Mm. information. I guess, I mean, as, as we've sort of started to talk about before is again, it's, it's so closely tied to, you know, the, the individual on the individual patient basis, you're making these sort of trying to make these interventions to, 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 but they're also on a societal and policy level. It's at some stage, I mean, effectively you're advocate, you're an advocate for changing these at, at, at a higher level because of the knock-on effects, whether it's, whether it's change, you know, uh, advocating a, around a specific health related issue or something that, that will become one, you know, around, you know, I, I'll go back to the example we briefly touched on before with, with your, the article you wrote about um, the, the fires. And obviously that's not necessarily immediately a, a, a health issue because it's about, you know, it's a physical thing that's destroying property and in peril and putting people's um, safety in peril, but not necessarily their health until the, those other factors start to kick in. I mean, what, what, what role do you, do you, do, is there a line that, that, that doctors should stop at or is it, you know, they go follow, follow it wherever they can to, to get to the root of the, the, the real root of the problem? Yeah, that's a very broad question, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I think you have to, I think you have to run with what you're good at. Mm. Uh, and there's people that are good at policy and there's people that are good at public health and there's people that are good at uh, advocating for the, you know, for the, the person, the people who can't speak for themselves. And there's people that are good at uh, taking care of the the nitty gritty, like mm-hmm. as in patients face to face. And there's, so I think that um, you need to look at, if, if we're talking about doctors specifically, mm-hmm. you just need to find the type of niche that you're good at, and that's where what you need to run with. And and if we're talking about um, creative careers in medicine, I think what's interesting about that is when you do medical school, when you do your training program, it is very much advocated for you to keep the blinders on and just put your head down and do the work and get through and get through as quick as you can and finish the job and Get that those titles, you know, those letters after your name and, and just go and work and see patients. And the reality is it does not have to be everyone's journey. There are so many little tangents you can take. And sometimes those tangents make for a really interesting life. Um, and, you know, I guess looking back at my own life speaking to you, I have done some pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. And sometimes... Thank you. I mean, sometimes I look back and I feel bad about, well, why didn't I, you know, why don't I have this prestigious job or, or, you know, maybe I could have made more money or maybe I could have done better for myself or maybe I yeah. could have written more papers or maybe I could have, I don't know, spoken at more conferences. You know, I think that, I think that's being harsh on ourselves. I think ultimately your journey is your own and you need to make of it what makes you happy. And if that's, a sort of basic clinical job that that was your aspiration. Great. If it's teaching, great. If it's working in um, academics or, or research or media or owning a business, I, I, I think that doctors can do anything they want to do. And I think that we learn so many great skills that we don't realize are transferable to other careers or to careers a little bit outside the box. So I think ultimately, when you look at medicine, you need to embrace, look really inside yourself, 
and embrace what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what will make you happy. Uh, and I think that's what you need to run with. And, and I think people have a lot of gifts that they don't, you know, innate talents in things that they maybe don't even realize. So sometimes it's worth taking a risk to try and figure out a, an alternate path that could lead to still, because I think ultimately, and if I can generalize, yeah, sure. ultimately most doctors kind of just, and back to what I said at the beginning, they just want to help people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's what we, that's why we're in this profession. Um, and for me, that's where it all comes back to. But then I have to think about what are my skills? What are my, you know, how can I do that? How can I help people to the best of my ability? What does that mean for me? And then, of course, I need to be also not just emptying the tank either. Yeah. Because I think a lot of doctors do that. I think that you give, 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 and then you end up with nothing. And I think that's also something that needs to change because I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that, working 80-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks, and not doing anything for myself, not doing all the lifestyle things that, I've been, that I advocate for, not making the time to spend with my kids, not making the time to exercise or move my body or, yeah. you know, suffering in my sleep or stressing too much. And, you know, I mean, I'm guilty of all of that. But, but what I have to do is just bring myself back to my roots and what's important to me and how I think I can make myself well. And then ultimately, if I'm well, if my tank is full, then I can use that to, to, to be in service to others. One of the questions I was going to ask you um, was around what, you know, what, what's next for you? Where you, where you look, where you, when you're looking ahead. <clears throat> when do you see something, you know, do you see yourself trying to broaden out your, your media, the, the media chunk of, the, of your, your, your work life or professional life, um, into something? Cause obviously you've, you've got all these things that are going, but whether you wanted to focus on that or whether you wanted to focus on something else, but I guess, I guess in, in, in talking to you for the last sort of 40 minutes or so, you, it's very much a, your philosophy is following the opportunities as they come rather than trying to plan too far ahead. Is that fair to say? <laughs> That's the, the way the path of my life has gone. I certainly try to be a planner, but you know, I I do believe in grabbing a bull by the horns when you have the opportunity. Sometimes you just can't miss something if it comes in front of you and you want to run with it. Do it. You know, obviously, I still do the traditional things, like I did my three degrees and I, yep. you know, did my studying and I got my fellowships, etc., etc., etc. And I do believe in that but I also believe in not missing opportunities. So in answer to your question about what I want to do, I want to do everything. <laughs> um, and I know that sounds crazy, but I literally would, if an opportunity came in front of me, I would probably run with it. Um, I also got the opportunity last year to um, go and volunteer in Papua New Guinea wow. for a month. Um, you know, just go and give my time, give back. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. And so I just feel that for me, the future holds lots of things. I would like to use, uh, continue using my very small media platform and hopefully continuing to grow that because yeah. I feel very, very passionate about um, trying to help improve health literacy and, and help people read through the misinformation out there. And whether that's in the form of writing a book currently, so uh, whether right. that's a book, yeah. 
<laughs> in, in, um, the, in your spare time <laughs> in my spare time um blogs you know television um radio podcasts whatever way to get the message out yeah. there social media uh, as well as I, I really really feel a passion about wanting to help medical students learn a bit more about prevention so i've certainly had a few ideas about trying to do some kind of course yeah. or teaching at medical school about preventative medicine, really cool, yeah. nutrition, exercise. Absolutely. And I know some doctors doing some great things in the UK um, uh, in that kind of space. So maybe we could get something like that going here in Australia. Um, honestly, and, and of course, I I know we can't travel at the moment, and I, and I respect that fully. Yeah. Uh, but of course, in the future, when things open up again, hopefully, I would love to give it, be in service again and volunteer my time, uh, whether it's through an NGO or, or whatever. I always like to give back. So so that's definitely on the cards. And who knows? I, and of course, I love clinical medicine. So that needs to be in my future. Yeah. But honestly, the sky's the limit. Whatever comes my way, if it's a great opportunity, I'm going to run with it. <laughs> I mean that's that's some great advice as well. But one, one, I before I do let you go, I wanted to ask you more specifically about, um, you know, if, any advice you might have for someone who might be looking to branch out into lifestyle medicine in terms of weighing up what's involved, like what what commitment, what risks are there, um, and and what 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 is different about it, what to expect, what how much support there is, because obviously I think you spoke about the how the society had helped, um, you, oh, sorry, the association association society. Um, society society had had really helped you um what what advice would you give to someone who was who was looking to to get into that area well it's very new so i think watch this space but certainly the people running uh the australian society of lifestyle medicine are wonderful they can give you some guidance at the moment they're doing a lot of grandfathering meaning that based on your life experience. So for example, if you've got a degree in sports science or nutrition, you know, you can use that towards getting your fellowship or points or towards, you know, writing your, uh, your exam. So it's certainly worth getting in touch with the association to find out what your situation, how hard or easy it would be for you to do your board certification and your uh, fellowship if that interests you. Um, So, so they're very supportive. Uh, but I do think just in general, um, I think whether it's a formal exam uh, that you need to study for or whether it's just self-education, I think as doctors, well, certainly part of my love of it is that I learn something new every day. Sure. And so I think you just need to keep researching and reading and educating yourself. Things change. Every day they change. Uh, uh, you know, so I think you just need to keep being open to learning. And I do think that over our lifetime and probably in after lifetime, uh, prevention is going to be key. Again, not superseding treatment and surgeries and all the availability of, uh, you know, all the things that we've discovered in medicine and the medicines and everything else, but also just sort of broadening that to prevention and trying to help people learn a new way of being well. And I think by formalizing the education, it gives a little more respect and a little bit more uh, credibility, mm-hmm. which is important so that, you know, you may want to listen to someone who has a fellowship in lifestyle medicine talk about lifestyle rather than someone 
who doesn't have any education behind them. And again, I'm not saying education is the be-all, end-all, but I do think formal education I'm talking about. Education is always the be-all, end-all. For sure. (laughs) Whether it's what I'm talking about is formal education. And I am a believer in that. I do think that it's important to have education behind you, formal, and I've done plenty of that myself. So I do recommend doing, at the moment, some sort of education behind it. Um, I do think that, for example, general practice is a good place. So if you did maybe the fellowship in general practice and that enabled you, because because let's face it, you know, it's we have to work with the structure of our system. And so if you want to try and build patients, if we're talking about just making a living, paying your bills, paying a mortgage, you probably want to do some kind of formal education before you branch out. Yeah. But that said, not everybody who's a GP does lifestyle medicine. So, you know, there's lots of avenues. I suppose it's just good to get some information, educate yourself on the possibilities, um, and then branching out into what you're passionate about. And taking those opportunities when they pop up. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Exactly right. <laughs> well, look, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's probably a good place to leave it. Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast, Jill Gamberg. Thank you so much, Andrew. That's an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Huge, huge thank you once again to Dr. Jill Gamberg for her time. If you're interested in learning more about what she does, um, you can head over to her website at drjillgamberg.com. That's Dr. D-R-J-I-L-L-G-A-M-B-E-R-G.com where you can check out her blog and some of the articles that she's um, written, including some of those that we touched on in our chat just now. Um, As I said at the top, this episode is brought to you by Blue Gibbon. Blue Gibbon provide doctors with world-class career opportunities described as the weird and the wonderful, including large events, high-profile government departments, on remote offshore islands, in technology and corporate organizations, and more. Relentless five-star service is guaranteed, so head over to bluegibbon.com. That's B-L-U-G-I-B-B-O-N.com to get in touch with them. And before I go, just another quick reminder to head over to CCIM homepage to register for the CCIM 2020 conference in December and also to join up as a member and secure your member benefits. You can read all about those packages, um, including bundling those two together um, at creativecareersinmedicine.com. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with more interviews.